This is the John Oakley Show podcast. There's another one here, and it has to do with Hamilton. You might recall back in October, there was a young man who was stabbed outside of his secondary school, Sir Winston Churchill Secondary, uh, Devin Selvey. <sighs> Horrific story of bullying and uh, the mother present at the time, and there were two individuals who were uh, allegedly the perps in all of this, uh, including an 18-year-old uh, who was actually... Uh, had his charges of first-degree murder dropped by the Crown on Friday. Rather, he's facing three charges, assault with a weapon, administer a noxious thing, and possession of a prohibited weapon. But uh, the fact that he'd spent two months in jail with no bail and uh, awaiting trial has his lawyer outraged. Well, let's find out how this all plays out or uh, how it did go down and for what reason. Joseph Newberger has joined us on the line, Global News Radio legal expert with Newberger and Partners. Joseph, always a pleasure. Good afternoon. The pleasure is mine, John. How are you? Very good. Uh, a little perplexed, though, because, I mean, uh, when the lawyer for this 18-year-old uh, says that he sat in jail for two months as an 18-year-old with no criminal record, she says that's a travesty, and uh, there was no reasonable prospect of conviction on the murder charge. Uh, what happened here, then, that this would be allowed to happen? Well, first of all, let's start from the premise that we know that there still is some involvement, because... This individual is still charged with assault with a weapon, uh, with a weapon, administer noxious substance, and possession of a prohibited weapon. The issue for the Crown to determine, based upon all the evidence available, which I understand included fairly extensive uh, surveillance, mm-hmm. um, was not sufficient to link or provide a foundation that he was, I guess, a part of any type of pre-planning or concerted effort to kill this poor 14-year-old boy. And so they would need to, I guess, find, and I guess in their mind, that there was some assistance that he provided with knowledge of what was going to happen in order to sustain a murder charge. And it seems that from the review of witness uh, statements and from the extensive surveillance that there was no a sufficient basis for that, and that's why they withdrew the uh, the murder charge. All right, so if there's no basis for it, uh, is it, possible that the police overcharge? Uh, is that something that they do as a rule, or it's just to cover their you-know-what? Or uh, Because, I mean, couldn't you have more or less uh, arrived at this conclusion at, uh, you know, the first blush of evidence? Um, probably not. So I guess, you know, for the police, they're responding to what is an exceptionally tragic and horrific incident, um, and uh, they don't have immediately available um, the surveillance and the statements, that takes some time to unfold. So they may have um, overshot the target by charging with murder, but I think at that time they had some reasonable grounds to believe that there was some planning to the act and that there may have been a concerted effort or that this 18-year-old aided and abetted the murder. Um, and then uh, in fairly short order, so at two months it's not great for somebody being in custody for that period of time, Nevertheless, I think the Crown and police acted fairly swiftly in reviewing everything and the Crown arriving at the decision that it did. So, um, you know, on the side that the police may have overcharged, I think one can easily forgive them in a, in a situation like this because in the midst of a, a, a few hours or a 24-hour span when they're making the arrests and sifting through statements and, and dealing with a very emotional situation, they're not in a position to, to go through all of the evidence with a fine-tooth comb. All right. And so uh, when the lawyer says, but two months, the guy waited in jail as an 18-year-old, she finds that a travesty. Uh, Is it, I mean, uh, 
bail obviously wasn't granted here, uh, so I don't know how this works. Is she overstating the fact? Well, you know, you can look at this from two two aspects. It's very hard to, uh, from from the public standpoint, where there's a loss of life of a 14-year-old who was bullied and literally died in front of his mother. Um, that's a travesty, and that that's an enormous tragedy. Two months in jail, uh, you know, it, it also can be a travesty when somebody should not have been charged with a murder charge because it's very serious to the family and to the 18-year-old accused. Nevertheless, that individual, it's not as if all charges were withdrawn and there was completely no evidence against that individual. He still is facing fairly significant charges. So, I, I, you know, I, I, I understand the sentiment from a defense lawyer. One would say it, this is an unfortunate situation. I wouldn't call it a travesty necessarily, but, you know, we do have to be careful, whether it's this case or others, we have to be careful with people's liberty because two months in jail on a murder charge is a very serious thing. All right, uh, still with the idea of what might be a travesty. Joe Newberger, by the way, is with us, Global News Radio's legal expert with Newberger and Partners. Story last week of a, a woman who lost her life in a fire, 61-year-old single mom and nurse at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, uh, the name Yvonne Batchelor. And it turns out now her son, 24-year-old Joel Vassell, has been charged with arson and is facing further charges. And uh, apparently, uh, according to Global News, He's the one who allegedly said he uh, called the police from uh, the hospital. And uh, this is Etobicoke General Hospital. Again, allegedly said he had set fire at the same address where his mother lived. Now, he was in court last Thursday uh, where the Crown says more charges are likely in the days to come. But what's interesting was, according to Global News again, they learned the vassal who was found not criminally responsible back in June of 2015 on charges of assault with a weapon and attempted murder in 2014 involving his mother and grandmother, was living in the community. And according to the most recent disposition and reasons from the Ontario Review Board, just uh, back two months ago, uh, he continued to pose a significant threat to public safety. Joe, we've been down this road before. I mean, if he's been assessed as such, he's allowed in. Now, I know these are still allegations, but how does this fall through the cracks? How's this allowed to happen? Well, you know, let's look at this from some other perspective. So when somebody first has a not criminally responsible finding, they're, they're laboring under a mental illness. And there are times through uh, their detention in hospital and treatment that they reach a sufficient level of stability. And they are carefully monitored with very robust uh, conditions as well as teams that are involved in his care that he could be managed in the community. The problem is sometimes uh, due to a relapse or non-compliance with medication, uh, there can be an exacerbation of the illness, which is not foreseen by the, the outpatient treatment team, and then a tragedy happens. Fortunately, this is few and far between, but um, you know, it's quite serious with this individual because there's been two other incidents, you know, such a shame that now we have a loss of life. Um, but, but the thing is we don't detain people in hospital for life. We don't preventatively detain them. The best that the system is able to work on is their level of treatment and risk at the time. And if somebody is suffering from a major mental illness and is responding well to medication and has a, has a history, because they have to build up a privileged history to show that they're able to be in the community safely, then they do get released. And sometimes people um, suffer an exacerbation of their symptoms and, and something tragic like this happens. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, the idea that this guy uh, would have been uh, 
a risk to uh, reoffend or a threat to the community. Uh, three relatives, his aunt, his uncle, and his cousin, provided a victim impact statement descri- describing their pain around the attack on the grandmother and that yeah. they continue to be fearful of him and remain concerned about any current or future contact with him. A no-contact order between Vassal and those three relatives would, was issued. Uh, and yet, I guess, uh, because he was compliant with medication, uh, they allowed him back into the community and uh, everything. By the way, you know, even further to that, his nightly dosage of an antipsychotic medication was also reduced at his request. Doesn't it seem like uh, the system is somewhat slipshod in safeguarding uh, those who might be fearful of this person reoffending? Uh, I, I can see how in this case, I, I'm, I'm going to have to be very careful here. I, I can see how in this case it may seem um, that on its face uh, there isn't a sufficient response to the risk to the potential victims or to the community. That being said, um, when you take a step back and look at the numbers of individuals that are under the Ontario Review Board and are managed, um, you know, you have a very high percentage that are doing well in the community and very well managed. And sometimes uh, reduction in medication sometimes does occur without an exacerbation of symptoms because there are other very serious side effects. Um, in this case, you know, the tragedy is that obviously something else went awry here where he remained um, you know, fixated on, on his mother and uh, something occurred by way of an exacerbation of symptoms because this, this would have happened this way, uh, but for something regarding the illness. And, um, and, and it's, it's a tragedy. I don't, without spending more time with the reasons from the board and looking at the clinical record, there's not much more I could say. But, but I can say that, you know, CAMH itself, as well as other mental health centers like Ontario Shores, they tend to be very conservative in how they go about granting privileges. And so um, sometimes it's it's hard to foresee or, pre- or prevent something like this happening. When you say that, but they have uh, the discretionary authority to grant privileges uh, in and of themselves, and they're hands-on, there has been a suggestion that maybe the model ought to be adopted like the parole board where it's a third party and they're uh, distinct and different from, you know, uh, handling these cases directly. So then they would rule on the permissibility of this person to be granted privileges like access to the community. I see what you're saying. Well, so you're right. So the hospital maintains the discretion as to how to exercise the privileges uh, that, in essence, is really granted by way of the power of the Ontario Review Board. So the Ontario Review Board will a- annually review and will dictate the level of security and what the conditions are, and it's left up to the discretion of the hospital. The difficulty is you will not be able to find a third party like a parole board who would have the sufficient expertise in order to determine uh, when it's appropriate on a day-by-day basis to grant privileges, because a person who has a detention order may have hospital grounds privileges and privileges into the community. And on a day-to-day basis, this is being monitored by nursing staff, the doctors, social workers, and then by a specific unit within the hospital that oversees what's called the privilege ladder. And so it's very dynamic and it responds to ongoing risk. It would be impossible to hand that off to a third party to manage it. It just it just would be completely unworkable and 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 literally they'd have to be at the hospital doing this on a day-to-day basis because the dynamic risk of an individual is literally looked at uh you know day by day sometimes hour by hour depending if there's a change in a mental status so 
I understand the sentiment about it, but it just would not be workable because you need the people on the ground with the with the patient doing this type of work and making these decisions. All right. Although they say the Ontario Review Board had a hearing back in September, had some concerns regarding his level of engagement with the forensic outpatient yeah. service and potential community supports, but nonetheless, Green lit him to get back into the community. Uh the tragic consequences now that have been alleged uh, speak for themselves. Uh, it's an outrage, but we'll leave it at that. I thank you for your explanations as always, Joseph, and we'll talk real soon. All right. Take care, John. Be well. You got it. Joseph Newberger, Global News Radio legal expert with Newberger and Partners. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 